She began her career with extensive work at some of the country's top regional theaters, including both Milwaukee Rep and Seattle Rep, ultimately landing herself on Broadway twice in 1976 alone. She then took a 22-year stage hiatus to do even more extensive TV work, returning to theater in the play Wit, both off-Broadway and on national tour, and she's been on stage seemingly continuously ever since, currently appearing in the Broadway production of Lombardi. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm pleased to meet Judith Light. I'm pleased to meet you. So the first obvious question, is Lombardi a play about football? Uh, no, Lombardi is not a play about football. Uh, Lombardi is a play about a man that we hold as a myth and an icon and that we know very little about personally. So it is through the eyes of the other characters in the play that you really get to know this man. And it is through the eyes of his wife, Marie, that I play and several of the football players. And what you begin to see is that this man was about taking other people up to the highest level of who they could be. And so this play, as our director, Thomas Kale says, it is about inspiration and it is about love. I was going to in my intro but decided it was too obscure say that you play the title role in Lombardi <laughs> because in point of fact, there are two Lombardis in yes, this yes, show. Yes, there, there are two Lombardis. When you were approached about the show, A, did you have much knowledge of Vince Lombardi and B, you know, did you have concerns about it being a sports play? Um, no, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. I didn't know very much about Vince Lombardi. You are from New Jersey. I, you knew the service area. I did, probably. Yes, I do know the okay. service area exactly. And I do. I didn't know a bit about him, but I didn't know as much as certainly as I know now as, uh, from David Marinus's book. His book is fantastic. You know, the book when pride still matters, which that is what the play, the play is based upon. Is the yeah. play is based upon. Um, and I, I didn't know a lot about football. I didn't know anything about Marie at all. And she really was uh, the one person in his life that he listened to. Um, and even the players would go to her when they were having trouble with Vince. So it was more a lot of research that I had to do. And I was fascinated by who this person was, um, not just Vince Lombardi, but who Marie was. And at that time, what it would mean to a woman to – in quotes, up and leave her own life in support of someone else. But she never gave herself up. She moved to Green Bay in devotion of him and his vision. You say research. Obviously, with a play that's directly based on a particular piece of journalism about Lombardi, you get one perspective. Did you seek more perspectives on who she was or did you let the play define your character? Uh, I did read some other books on Vince. I did see some of the footage that the NFL had given to us, and I bought football for dummies because I really do not. <laughs> seriously, Keith Knob said to me the first day when everybody was talking about football in the room, he leaned over to me and he he plays the reporter, which is the only fictional character in the play, and he said to me, I don't know what they're talking about, do you? And I said, I haven't got a clue. And he said, I just bought football for dummies. So I went out and I bought football for dummies. And they gave me a tape of Marie, a video and a uh, a vocal tape. And I, I started listening to the vocal tape and I thought, I can't 
do this. I can't have her in my head because there's so much that Eric Simons and the playwright had put into the play about her that were levels and layers that I felt I had to discover on my own. What I was afraid of, Howard, was that I was afraid I would do an impersonation of Marie or a caricature of Marie. For people who, by and large, the vast majority of the audience would have no idea what she sounded like. That's right. It's, you're not doing Frost Nixon. That, that's that's exactly right. But for my own integrity as a creative artist, I felt that I could not do that. I would not be fair to the piece and the play, um, nor to my connection with Dan Loria, who is playing Lombardi, and our longtime connection. I knew that I had to be playing off of him. I knew that I would get a lot of guidance from Tommy Kale, which I did, and from the playwright. And so um, I just chose not to go there, which is kind of unusual for me. I, I, I often tend to... Um, work differently than that but some voice in my head said just don't don't do this don't go there are there lombardi family members that have come to see the play yes yes and susan her um the, her their daughter came on opening night and when she said hello to me she started to cry and she said you're my mother you're my mother hmm. so i i felt very graced by that by her approval and other family members have come and said that's our aunt marie even though you're not doing an impersonation. No, exactly, exactly, which is, was sort of stunning to me. I don't, I don't know if you know the you, – you, of course you do. You know the book The Mystic in the Theater. I don't know it. Uh, it's an extraordinary You've book. exposed some ignorance. <laughs> well, well uh, sorry, but uh, <laughs> there's a wonderful um, quote in there about uh, Eleanor Duza, and I'm not in any way comparing myself to her, but it talked about the way that she worked and that she would sit in front of an open window – and allow the voice of the character to come to her and that she would um, – it was through her imagination and her will that this character came out of her, this being was created out of her and that she moved everything of herself away so that this character could come through. And I have always thought that was a lovely quote and I said, okay – you know, it's time you looked at that and saw how that happens and how that manifests and that you could trust yourself enough and the people around you enough to try working that way. Mm. And that is pretty much what I did with this. I knew that this woman was somewhere inside of me and I just needed to remove the excess to allow myself to be used as a channel for mm. her. I'm always curious as to... What, if anything, you hear from members of the audience after the show, if there are people who wait around to get an autograph or whatever, because the producers of the show have been extremely shrewd in marketing it with the tie-in to the NFL. Yes. Um, so do you hear from people after the show? Does the show deliver different expectations than they came in with? Oh, that's such a good question. Most definitely. People have come in and they have said, this is not – I didn't know what to expect. And I was exposed to something that I had no idea uh, that I would see because a lot of people think it's about football. And naturally, that's so. It's Vince Lombardi. It's the NFL. And, and a lot of the marketing has been in relation to that. 
But then they start seeing this story about the depth of this relationship um, between a husband and a wife. And they start to see how Vince was so brilliantly psychological in his treatment of each one of his players. He knew what each one of them needed. So it is this in-depth, layered story of these relationships, and that's what reveals the man, and I think that's what they were surprised by. I think they thought they were going to see a lot of football stuff mm-hmm. and listen to his famous play, which is the you know 48 and the sweep and all of those sorts of things in a lot of football terms, which they do hear, but there's something else that they're getting, and I, I was talking to some people and I was telling them um, about the these two women that were waiting outside in the lobby one day, and they came to see the play before... They were going to bring their husbands because they wanted to make sure there was going to be enough football in it for their husbands. And they said, we're definitely bringing them back. But they said, it is a play for us. It is a play for women and the story of their relationships to men who are very powerful and make their lives about something else and come in second. These women that come in second to their spouse's first love. And Marie said it. She said, I always came in second. But she knew it. And well, she he has it. the comment in the play about there are three important things in life. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the team, God, and family. That's right. And, uh, and not necessarily not in that, that order. order. Yeah. Right. right. I'm curious. The play hints at, and you've already spoken of, of sort of the self-sacrifice of, of Marie. And the play hints at, without getting too explicit, about how difficult it must have been for the kids in that family. Have you, with your character, come to grips with the fact that not only she had to submerge herself to her husband's goals, but the fact that she had to hold a family together and raise kids in what may not have been the ideal environment for them? Uh, it was it was very difficult for her. I mean, she was a city girl. She was New Jersey and New York, and she loved all of that. And so, to take them out to a place in Green Bay at that time was, you know, she says it's a very small municipality. Um, to go someplace to to support his vision, and I don't think she felt that it was a self-sacrifice. I don't think that's really Marie's character, but it was very difficult for him uh, to relate to her and the kids. And yes, she was the sole support of that. Although Vince was very good with Susan, who had some learning difficulties, and he would sit with her very patiently and go through things with her when he could. But he was one-point focus. But how do you then, as an actress, in this day and age, we know that the changing roles of women, their own careers, their own lives, family, to something that is now, close 50 years ago, very different mindset. How do you find your way through so that the love of the man can be played in spite of all of these flaws? I had to make the love the most important active choice because if you don't see how much she loves him and you don't see how much he loves her and how much they are soulmates and connected, then she looks like she's in an abusive relationship and you can't, you can't connect to her. And so subsequently then you can't connect to him. So in support of the play, him, the story and the truth, that had to be, love had to be the most active 
choice. And Tommy and I talked about it and Eric wrote it and it's and it's in there. And that was the truth. I mean, she never felt diminished in relationship to him because she knew how powerful she was. She knew he listened to her. And so when you have a relationship like that, you feel a partnership. And that was the truth of their relationship. For all the world, you could look at it and you can say, well, she, you know, she gave up her whole life to go out there. But she also made it work for herself. She was in charge of the players' wives' functions. And when they would win the championships, she would go to Vince and she would say, these women are giving up their lives, a lot of them essentially, to raise their children alone and take care of these guys who are completely outer focused on something else, not them and not their families. And one time she said to him, he said, oh, I'll buy them all a little something. And she said, no, 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 no. It's not going to be a little something, Vince. She made him buy all the players' wives' mink stoles. And there is a picture in David's book of all of the players' wives wearing their mink stoles that Vince gave them. But so he would listen to her. So it wasn't like the little woman behind the man. This is, and you know, you've seen the the production. You you see you know this pushover. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. It's like she's the one who could say, "Vince, essentially, sit down and shut up," and he would. Hmm. Well, let's. We've mentioned uh, the fact that you hail from New Jersey already. So I want to jump back to the high school girl who put the following as her quote in her high school yearbook. Acting is no mere translation or abstraction from life. It is life itself. Clearly, you had been bitten by the bug early. Yeah, yeah. So first tell me about, (laughs) do you remember why you chose that quote, which now dogs you many years later? I have no idea. I don't know where it's from. Um, And I, I don't know if I may have said it and my father re- wrote it or I, I, I have no I, – If I you said that in high school, you were the smartest high school <laughs> actress in the universe. I can't imagine that I said it. I said maybe something like it, but I was bitten and that is really true. And, you know, my my mother would probably remember she has since passed about a year ago, but my, um, my father might actually remember. So at some point I can get back to you on this because <laughs> he's in Florida and I can call him and, and, and see if he remembers. Members, um, I I was bitten early. I was I was very little. I started when I was basically. My mother coached me to learn "Twas the Night Before Christmas" to perform it for my father. Now you ask, what is a Jewish girl doing learning "Twas the Night Before Christmas"? You're I, ahead of me. Yes. We we had I don't know. I we had a menorah and a Christmas tree. I I don't know okay. why she chose that. Um, and I I foolishly never asked her. But, and also a relative lack of narrative Hanukkah poems. <laughs> exactly. So, so I, you know, and I performed it for him and I remember the moment. And it's one of those, you know, what psychiatrists or psychologists call a palimpsest moment where you have this incredible moment in time that you stays with you and is changes the course of your life. Um, and I remember watching my father's face and seeing him crying, and I thought, oh, this is what I want to do all of my life. Hmm. This is what I will do. Had you seen theater at that point? Or- no, but both my parents were very uh, connected to the theater. My father had, I think, would have liked to have been a performer. My mother was – my mother sang a bit, and they would do community theater shows, little little plays and things like that. He didn't, but she, but she did. 
so there was a kind of sense of theatricality in the house um, and love of it. And were you taken then at a certain age to start seeing it? Yes. I would be like in Trenton um, was doing all these different productions or the Jewish Community Center would do a production. My mother was in Gentleman Fur Blondes and she took me with her to be part of the, you know, the, 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 the background, you know. Um, and then I – when I went to high school, I went to um, a school called St. Mary's Hall and I <laughs> – I was one of six Jewish girls in this school uh, and was infinitely disturbed that they wouldn't let me play the Virgin Mary in the Christmas pageant because my cause celeb was that she well, had been Jewish. Well, they don't been doing the research for years. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, – but there was a woman there whose name was Ruth Strand and she was the head of admissions and she was also the head of drama and – it was there that I really I, – and, and at junior three, I had been in oratorical contests and I had done plays there. And so I was I was doing things all the time and then there were – you know, in Trenton, there were little places where you could go and study acting and things like that. So they were – my parents were always taking me to do something and then hmm. I was doing community theater. So there was a, a real support and they were very nurturing in relation to that, um, to this drive that I had, this love that I had. Hmm. And what was interesting about all of that was that as I faced the reality of the business, I really had to shift out of the place of the child who had decided that she wanted to do this to become a different kind of performer and artist that was not relying on being a child but actually was a grown-up who was doing the discipline of the work. And that was, that was a very hard process for me. Was that a process that began? You went to a summer program while still in high school. You went out to Carnegie Mellon right. and then I, ultimately went to Carnegie Mellon. That's was exactly that right. the start of that process, or or, <laughs> or did that thought linger even on into college? That's a great question. It actually, it really began when I went to Carnegie, um, not for the summer program because that was a summer program and it was great fun and it was just part of being with other actors and being with. Um, but actually, now that I think about it, it's interesting that you bring that up is because when I was very young, my parents sent me to a performing arts camp in New Hope, Pennsylvania. And there were teachers who had come from New York um, to get away from the heat of the summer and to come and teach in Bucks County. I mean, what could be better? And they were very um, strict and disciplined and talking about the reality of the business. So I got a bit of it then. But you know, when you're so young, you tend to toss it off and you say, oh, well, I'm just going to be successful and I'm going to do what I want to do. And none of those things really started to sink in the way they sank in my first year at Carnegie because you were not allowed to perform your first year. Um, you had to do all kinds of crew. You had to build props. You had to build costumes. You were I mean, it was. It's a what the what the um, brochure says for the school is that it, it is as rigorous and exacting as theater itself, and hmm. it was truly that. But it also takes you down a peg if you've presumably been starring in high school shows. That is correct. Suddenly, you're surrounded. Everybody started their high that school is shows. No, you're working crew. That is right. That is right. And all of a sudden, I was faced with a reality that was very difficult for me and very scary too because at that time at Carnegie you were you came in with a large group I think we were 60 when we came in and by the time we graduated we were 15 
Was that because everyone else um, fled or because it was a program where it was a conservatory approach and you had to be accepted? Yes, it was a conservatory approach and and you had – and you got – you didn't get ABC. You got comments. So either – Either people decided that they didn't want to do this any longer, that they were faced with the realities of the business and they chose to leave or they were asked to leave or, um, you know, one of those two. I, I don't think anybody fled, but it was a very rigorous program for which I am extremely grateful. And worth noting for people nowadays, now we have literally hundreds of undergraduate acting programs in the that's, country. That's correct. Um, going back to the period when you were at Carnegie Mellon, it was probably one of the relatively few that right. were there. So getting in and going through that program was even more of an achievement than doing an undergraduate program now. Yes, mo- most definitely. And at the time, I mean, there was Yale, there was NYU, there was um, um, uh, uh, you know, and and, yeah, and Carnegie then, and Northwestern. Yale, Yale was a graduate program. That's right. At that point, that I don't correct. believe there was any kind of an undergraduate. No, no, that is, that is that is correct. So, so that 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 is true. So that's where that kind of thinking began to um, to take shape. But it it really solidified itself uh, later once I had graduated. So when you graduated, according to your very detailed website and things we looked up. Was the first gig a European USO tour of Guys and Dolls? Yeah. How'd that happen? They brought the USO went to came to Carnegie, and we were the first professional school that did a USO tour. Usually, it had so been it a lot of all Carnegie students. It was all Carnegie students, and it was they. I don't. I think we, if I recall, I mean, we're going back a, a long time now, and and if memory serves. We um, it was um, directed by a man named Larry Carra, who was the head of the directing program, and a guy named Charlie Hayde, who was on Hill Street Blues, was essentially the producer of it, and Paula Wagner, who uh, you Tom know, Cruise's but, producing partner. It, it, that's exactly right. And Paula and I um, f- f- switched off and played Adelaide. Well, it's interesting not to not to dwell too much on on Carnegie Mellon, but. There was a whole gang of people who came out of Carnegie Mellon. When you mentioned Charlie Hayde, a lot of those Hill Street people, that's for right. Those like me who loved it were all Carnegie Mellon. Stephen Bochco. Yeah. So that's where all that started. Hmm. Um, so we were kind of the gang, and yes, we went over on the this USO tour and. We were gone for three months, and it was playing military bases. Yes, and, all over Germany. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And this was during Vietnam, it so was, you weren't you weren't performing in Vietnam. You weren't on the Bob Hope tours, no. But you were still you were playing the the staging bases that's in exa- Europe. That's exactly right. And uh, we went to Berlin, and the wall was still up, and it was very uh, it was very dicey. I mean, they were very clear with us. They said, if you get on the wrong train, if you go somewhere and you get into East Berlin, we cannot get you out. Hmm. You're go- you have you you will you will have problems. So. We we really got to see a kind of um, side of the world that most people at that time didn't get to see. And we weren't sure we were actually going to leave because Bobby Kennedy had been killed right before we were to leave in, mm. in the summer June of 1968. Wow. Yeah. So then you came back and 
Finish did a couple Carnegie. of shows for um, California Shakespeare Festival, Richard III and mm-hmm. the Knack. That's right. Um, now, where was the Cal- – is, is, is there still the California Shakespeare Festival or – I think there have been a couple of things called the California Shakespeare Festival over time. So which was yours? Uh, mine was the one in 1969. Yeah, where? where <laughs> Las Gatos, California. Uh-huh. And so we were there – uh, but I think it's changed names. I think it might yeah. be in the same place. But it, and this was David Dukes and David Ogden Stiers and Ben Masters, and um, I c- came into New York to audition for it, mm-hmm. and they hired me for the summer season, and I became I got an actor's journeyman card, um, and made thirty five dollars a week. What is a journeyman's card? That was before you. It was to apprentice to become uh, in actors' equity. Huh. So I had to do that first. So did – by the end of your time there, did you get into equity or did you still have a ways to go? I had a ways to go and it, then I, when I was graduating from Carnegie and I went through the whole process of the TCG auditions, when I went to the Milwaukee Rep, that was when I actually got my equity card. Now, you did uh, a couple of seasons at <laughs> Milwaukee Rep, bunch of different shows, uh, Measure for Measure, As You Like It. Spoon River Anthology, Medea. I mean, it's it's quite a mix. Your um, research is amazing. <laughs> well, your website's pretty thorough, I have to say. Um, so, at that point, were you were you the ingenue? Were you the young leading lady? Were you playing the maids? What what kind of work were you were you doing in that time? Well, you know, in those days, when you were graduating from a, a training program like Carnegie. You were invited or not invited to go. You would go to the preliminaries for the TCG auditions, which are the theater communications group auditions, and then you would either be picked for the finals or you would not. And I was, and they gave me. Um, you met all the artistic directors from all over the country hmm. at those auditions, which was an extraordinary thing that they did at that time. And so there was a wonderful woman named Rosemary Tischler who was running them. And Rosemary was sort of my guardian angel and she said, look, you're going to – when I did the preliminary, she said, look, you're going to be coming to the finals in Chicago and she said, there are going to be different people who are going to want to talk to you. And they gave you seasons and they told you what your season would be. So Milwaukee gave me a season where I was in the chorus in Medea but then I was playing Alice and You Can't Take It With You. And I was never really an ingenue. I, it was always either – you know, a young leading lady or a soubrette. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So I never – so they would give me all different kinds of things to play within the body of that and that's what I did in Milwaukee my first year and then I went on to the second year. And, and then you went out it. to Seattle yeah. for a season again in the same lines. I mean, you know, again, Macbeth, Camino Real, Charlie's Aunt, it's a mix again of plays. Yes, and, and just like – it was the same thing. I mean uh, – Nagel Jackson, who was a wonderful director, had taken over for Tunchy Allman from the Milwaukee Rep. And Nagel kept me on for the, the season, the first season that he came in. He wanted to put a company together and it was Ray Burke and Jeffrey Tambor and uh, Charles Kimbrough and it was just it was a terrific group of people. And then he said to me at the end of that season, he said, you have to get out of here. He said, if you don't get out of here, you're going to stay here forever. Hmm. And he said, you have to go and I want you to go watch – Nothing but theater. I want you to go to everything. I want you to watch everybody. 
So I knew I needed a job. So I had had an offer from Seattle during the TCG auditions and I went back and they were re-auditioning people and I went back and I re-auditioned for them and they gave me a season. That's how I came there. And then Nagel had me come back to finish off the Milwaukee rep season. And then I, I came to New York. But it was, I was playing all these well, different kinds of roles. Well, you actually did another whole season at Milwaukee because it's like 73, 74. And here you're playing Emily in our town. I mean you said you were never the ingenue. Right, we right. Could, we, we could argue how we define that. <laughs> yes. Um, I have to ask you about one credit in the midst, in the midst of all of this sure. just because I'm of an age to find it tremendously amusing. You did Last of the Red Hot Lovers with Pat Paulson. I did. I did. I, now, for those who don't remember, <laughs> we should say, Pat Paulson was a television comedian best known for his appearances on the Smothers Brothers show and the fact that he became a countercultural hero by repeatedly, <laughs> for decades, mounting ridiculous presidential campaigns. Exactly. So I would like to know, as a program that, that discusses the artistry of theater, I'd like to know the deep insights and learnings you got from performing <laughs> with Pat Paulson. I learned that I could do just about anything. And that I could keep staying connected to someone who worked so differently than I did. Hmm. And it was extremely valuable for me. Really? Yes. And I, I did it because I wanted to stay in Seattle. Um, I loved it there and I knew I needed the money and I needed the job and I needed – if I once I was done there, I was it was going to be added to my unemployment for when I was next unemployed. Right. And so that was how I came to do that. Um, I, I'm one of those people who who says yes a lot, and it has sometimes been to my detriment, and sometimes, and most of the time, it has been to my credit um, because I've kept working, hmm. and I've had a lot of you know I've, I've had longevity. So, so as you say, after the seventy three seventy four season. Milwaukee rep, forgive the diversion onto Pat Paulson, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> um, you came to New York, right. and again, you started to work. You did. Um, you played the maid in a doll's house on Broadway mm-hmm. with Lee Volman and Sam Waterston, That's right. which uh, presumably within the year of getting to New York, that's a that's a good start. Well, again, this is where Rosemary Tischler comes in. Mm. I called Rosemary when I, was in, when I was in Milwaukee my last season there and I said, do you think it's time for me to come to New York? And she said, actually, I do because I knew that I wasn't going to stay in repertory theater forever uh, as much as I loved it and as much as I gleaned from it. And she said, I do. And she said, I can – I think I will be able to help you. And when I got here, she cast me. She was casting for the public theater, for mm-hmm. Joe. Pap and she said um, they cast me in in that in that part so mm. that I could be there and I could learn. I think it's worth noting that in contrast to so many of the actors and actresses that I speak to on this program, um, you were not growing up in the Midwest and making the big move to New York. You actually grew up, you know, on the East Coast, went to the Midwest for a while, <laughs> yes. and then came back. <laughs> yes, that's that's true. I never thought about it like that, but yes. Um, but you you went up to Toronto and played Stella in Streetcar Named Desire. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, I thought to myself, I would think of her a little more as a Blanche, maybe. Um, so I was just curious as to how did the Toronto gig come to happen? I um, I had gotten an agent. Um, I was with Brett Adams and Judy Shane, and 
um, this wonderful director from Toronto, Kurt Reese, was coming down to audition people, and he was looking for Estella. He had his Blanche, uh, Frances Highland, a wonderful Canadian actress, hmm. and um, Ken Welsh was playing Stanley, and he said, I... I need Estella. And I, I think partly because I was much heavier than I am now, um, and he had asked me actually to lose some weight um, to play the part. I think he saw a different aspect of me, um, and that's why he, he was interested in having me play Stella. Hmm. Uh, and it turned out to be an incredibly rewarding experience. I think more Blanche uh, in later years would have been Right, but but not at not at that time, not where I was physically and psychologically. Because it's going to lead me into the next show. I want to ask you about. You mentioned before we went on the air mm-hmm. that you'd been calling yourself at the beginning of your career Judy. Mm-hmm. When did you become Judith, and why? I became Judith. I um, that is my name, and but professionally. but professionally, I was at it was the last show of. Tunch Yallman's reign at the Milwaukee Rep, and I was doing a play with a wonderful director named Paul Widener, who was the artistic director at the Hartford stage where you had been. Yeah. And Though we did not overlap. Right. Then Paul came to me and he said, why do you call yourself Judy? You're such a Judith. And he said, it is your name in equity. It is your real name. And he said, I think you should go by it, and I think you should own it. And in fact, as I began to do that, people were put off a bit by it at first, and they said, it sounds so stuffy and so snobby. But he was absolutely right, because it supported my ownership of myself as the person I always really wanted to be. I was not my parents child i was my own autonomous person who called herself what she wanted to call herself presumably your dad still calls you judy that's correct in day-to-day life did you become judith to yes. everyone yes so I did. it was more than just the equity name that's correct good. and let me ask when did you go from being licked to light my grandparents changed it before they came oh. to this country. I was never licked. Oh, I saw some stuff that I know, I know. And people that. have asked me about that before. Mm. No, my grandfather, when they came from the old country, he came as light. Oh, okay. And and um I, oh no, he he was licked there. He changed it to light here. Hmm. My father is light and so I am Okay, so I that was not a change that no, you no. made. I I say all of this because it leads me into asking about Herzl. The oh, big yes. Broadway show about Theodore Herzl, yes. um, which uh, had a brief run. It, that, that's not even the word for it. But it was, you know, it it was a big production and and a chance to to you know really be out there on the Broadway stage, not not as the maid, but but yes. with more of a role. Just what was the experience finally of of getting into something that big and that prominent? Because I even remember the advertising for it, though obviously I didn't see the show. I have a strange memory for these things. Mm. But uh, 
It was interesting because I, I do know Harry Hahn from Playbill, sure. Darling Harry. He, he saw Herzl and he sent me flowers on opening night and, and he said, P.S. Welcome back to Broadway. I saw Herzl. <laughs> <laughs> so it, was very, it was very sweet. Um, it, it was extraordinary. I, I have an eidetic image in my head of what happened. I was reading Backstage Magazine and I was living on unemployment. And I saw the the breakdown for it in backstage and I was sitting on the bus. I think I was in on the bus going downtown to unemployment, all the way down to Battery Park to get my unemployment. And I'm reading this and I said, this is me. I can play this part. Hmm. And so I went to the agent and I said, listen, Judy, you've got to get me in to see Shirley Rich, who was, you know, the premier casting person at the time. And I said, I just, just, just get me in the room. I just get me in the room. And, um, it took forever. And finally I said, look, I don't have to get it. Just get me in the room because I knew in the back of my mind, I said, if I get in the room, maybe I can get it. And I got in the room and Jay Rinelli, who is still a friend of mine, who is the director, was absolutely wonderful and so generous and so kind and Shirley Rich was there and when I did the the pre-audition for her, she just looked at me and she said, oh my. And I hmm. thought, okay, this is great. And then we got in the production and it was very short-lived and um, it was kind of devastating because it meant a lot to Dory Sherry because he had been the head of MGM and he really had wanted this to be to move produced into this. it and wrote yeah it. no no Amos Elon well oh. no that's right he, Amos Elon it was from Amos Elon's book mm-hmm. um, and um, I I believe that's right I mean you I would know better than I it, yes but, yeah um, and um, it just um, dissolved very quickly I hmm. mean people were really not interested um, in that man who had created the Zionist movement people just weren't interested hmm. now some might say. Okay, that's what started the hiatus. You did do Measure for Measure for Mm -hmm. um, the public. You Mm -hmm. understudied Meryl Streep. I did. um, In a production that also had Sam Waterston and the great John Cazale. Yes. Um, You went out to the O'Neill. I wouldn't be surprised if that was partly Jay Ranelli's doing at the same time. And then theater stops. Why? Did you stop doing theater in the mid-70s? What was really interesting was at the O'Neill, it was an amazing group of people that year. And we did the first reading of Wendy Wasserstein's Uncommon Women and Others. And the Phoenix Company was doing a production of it when we were coming back to New York with it. And there was a moment in time and and that goes back to that sort of thing where the the child ends and the grown up begins or should begin where one becomes w- oneself and it was a very wrenching experience for me and i would say to you that it was part um real experience of despair at not working mm-hmm. And finding that the theater was not, I wasn't getting jobs. It was not forthcoming. Um, I wasn't sure that I was going to get in the production of Uncommon Women. And somehow it all just came up in my face that this was harder than I believed it to be or thought it would be, that I was coming face to face with the reality of it. 
And I would say the other part of it was a temper tantrum. And I wanted it to be the way I wanted it to be. I wanted to get all the things that I wanted to get. I wanted it to be easy. I wanted to be given all the great roles. I wanted to do nothing but theater and feature films. And I had said to my parents when I moved to New York, I am never going to do a soap opera and I am never going to do a sitcom. I am only going to do theater and feature films, maybe. And when that wasn't happening, I was enraged and upset and in despair and I had no money and I thought what am I doing and why am I doing this and I had one of those existential moments where I said what am I doing this for if it's for my own ego I am miserable because I am having no satisfaction does it matter if I go to the O'Neill? Does it matter if I go up to Toronto and do a great Stella and get amazing notices in it? Does it matter? What what actually matters? Well, I started to really seriously look at that question and I went into therapy. And what came along out of after the first session, my first therapeutic session was I said to him, I want to leave the business. I've been in it all my life and I have no idea what I am going to do and I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. I love this business. It moves me. It's the thing that I love. But I can't seem to be doing it in the way that I want to be doing it. But then it would seem counterintuitive that you went and landed a role on a soap opera. I had no money. My agent, my the, the therapist said to me when I left the room that day, he said, don't do anything about the business leaving the business yet until you see me next week because something's going to happen. So he's a psychic. And I was saying tarot card reader, whatever. And I said, so at that time in New York, you had a service. You didn't have a cell phone. Right. So you call your service and your service tells you, you know, call your agent. So I call my agent and I had said to them, be clear. I'm never doing a soap opera. And she said to me, look, you have no money. They want to see you for an understudy on a soap opera, not even the soap opera. The, there was a gal who was on there. They were having problems with her. She wasn't showing up. She was not well, and they were at some level looking to replace her. She said, look, it's $350 for the day. I said, I'm there. Hmm. I said, okay, okay. And then I started to look at it, and I said, I need to reevaluate why I do this. Not that I do this, but what is the reason to be in this business? For me, not for other people, but for me. And I started really looking at that, and I thought, maybe if I can reach more people, people who might not get to see me on Broadway, people who deserve just as much of a an in-depth character, an in-depth performance, maybe that's the way that I can give, and maybe that's what I'm being guided to do. So instead of listening to my own a word you will know, my own mishigas, my own craziness, my own thoughts about what I thought I should be doing. I said, why don't you start listening and looking at the guidance you are receiving from outside of yourself? Hmm. And I promise you, it was never, ever what I wanted to do, but it was what I was being guided to do. Hmm. And I thought I should be listening rather than being miserable. To in no way diminish all of your success on TV, you went from 
the soap opera, mm-hmm. you had an eight-year run mm-hmm. on a highly successful situation comedy. Mm-hmm. Who's the boss um, through the 80s? There are a lot of people with roots in theater who on hiatuses will use the summer and go do a show. Mm-hmm. It seems you didn't choose to do that. Had you had you broken up with theater for the time being? I was terrified. I didn't think I could do it. And the other thing that was happening was that because I was successful in television, people were giving me television movies to do on my hiatus. So that was very seductive. Um, you would go. You would do a movie. I was working in film, I got to do a different character, um, and I got to make money, and I got to keep that longevity and that presence. Um, and I did f- something like fifteen or seventeen movies of the week. Yeah. So, I the the real answer to your question is that that was presented to me. I kept doing that. I loved the characters I was doing. I was also becoming a producer with my manager on some of these films, and that was interesting to me. It was another medium. It wasn't a soap opera. It wasn't a sitcom. It was film. So I was practicing that craft, but truth be told, when what happened was I had been doing a couple of different shows that didn't last after Who's the Boss? Somebody offered me an audition for a play, and I realized then how terrified I was. I didn't realize it. Herb Hampshire, my manager, said, you don't want to go up and audition for this because you are terrified to go back on stage. Now, was that wit? No. It wasn't. Okay. No. So this was an audition for something you then did not do. No. It was – no, no. I. It was It was a play. It was a John Tollins play oh. and it was called If Memory Serves and they mm-hmm. were doing it at the Pasadena Playhouse and it was about an aging sitcom star and I was embarrassed and – because I said to Herb, I said, Mm-mm, I, that's not a good part for me. And he said, it's a brilliant part for you. Hmm. So you did do it. I No. I said to him, I don't think I should be auditioning for this. And he said, the reason you're not auditioning for this is because you're terrified. And he said, at some point, you are going to have to go back into the theater if you really want to become the artist you say you want to be. And I said, okay, fine. And then I went away to a ladies yoga camp and we were meditating. And I said, I called him up and I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. I am beyond terrified. And he said, well, they cast somebody already, so you can't go up for it. Okay. You're terrified of going back to the theater. Your return to the theater (laughs) after 22 years is a show, a 90-minute show in which you carry the vast majority of the dialogue and the show on your back. You have to shave your head and you have to appear naked. Yes. That's confronting your fears. Yes. How did you manage that with wit? When I said to Herb, when he told me that If Memory Serves had been cast already, I sat down with him and with his partner, Jonathan Stoller, who also manages me, and I said, I can't live like this anymore. I can't live being a person who does all this work in AIDS and for the LGBT community, and I go around giving speeches about how courageous they are and how they inspire me and pretending to be a courageous person when I'm really not. And I said, I don't like who I am and who I am becoming because I will never go back. At a certain point, I will say, you know what, that's it, I'll never go back. 
I will look back from my deathbed and I will be furious at myself and live in deep sorrow for not having lived the way I wanted to live. And I said, so the next thing that I can get an audition for, I will go up for it no matter what it is. So, you know, the universe is, they think they're funny, you know, so it's like the next thing was wit. Hmm. And Herb said to me, so are you going to keep your word? And I thought, I can keep my word. I'm never going to get this part. There are just too many other people that are going to get this part. And I said, okay. And I flew myself to New York. And I went up for the audition. And um, I finished. And they said, when did you see the play? And I said, I haven't seen the play. And they were surprised. And... Um, it had moved. I was trying to see it. I had read fabulous things about it, and it was, you know, amazing. And and um, they were really interested. So when Herb called me and he said they want you to do it, and they wouldn't let me do the New York production unless I agreed to the tour as well, and I didn't want to do the tour. Um, but I wanted to come to New York and be in it in New York. And I knew there was a yes under there somewhere. And it took a two-hour conversation with Herb to get myself to say, okay, I, and to come to New York and to face the critics and to be bald and naked and, as you say, 90 minutes and follow Kathleen Chalfant, who had received every award you can possibly receive for that and, and be the person who took over for that phenomenon and her phenomenal run and reign of all of that, I just knew somewhere that if I didn't do it, I would never, ever forgive myself. So a two-part question. Yeah. Either, well, really, neither or. When did the terror go away or, in fact, did it? It didn't. It didn't. Does it still scare you to go out on stage? Or was it you had to get through that part? I had to get through that part and I had to keep and I and like and for every every place on tour it was another opening. You know, it wasn't it was the you know, it was the Kennedy Center mm. and it was you know, it was the Wilbur Theater oh, in Boston. So you, were, it was, you were constantly being exposed to judgment. Exactly. As opposed to just opening in New York and succeeding. Exactly. Exactly. And so I carried that with me through the whole time. But it becomes how does one live? How does one choose to live? So these things have become a vehicle for me, for my life. They are the content for me. They are not the context. The context is to become the person I have always wanted to be. And it is through this medium that I use these experiences to try to make myself the best human being I can possibly be. So opening night of Lombardi, I am still afraid. Hmm. But I, I carry it within me differently. And I, every night before I go on, I have the experience of the of the butterflies but it 
it also becomes something else. It becomes the the joy of giving a performance, which is something that I have said over and over again to to people. It's like that's what this is for. It's to give it away. It, it's not to keep it. So there's also that those terrors, but there's also an excitement and a thrill. Let me ask you about a couple of other shows yeah. in the time that we have left in the now post-hiatus, post-wit era yeah. of, of Judith Light's life. Um, Hedda Gabler, yes. which you did following the tour of Wit, mm-hmm. um, you were older than most actresses who play Hedda or mm-hmm. the way Hedda is written. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious as to how that informed your performance. Oh, that's such a great question. Um, and and also a, a question for the great Michael Kahn because Michael saw me do wit in Washington at the Kennedy Center and he said, I want us to do something. He actually read the review in the New York Times where um, they talked about my voice that, you know, I could be doing Shakespeare or something. So Michael said, ah, I should think of something. And he had wanted to do Hedda again. He had done it once before and he wanted to do it again. And he said, I think this is something that we should do together. Hmm. And it was one of those, it's the great parts. And when someone like Michael Kahn offers you that part and to be directed by him in that part, um, how I was informed um, how my age informed me about her was that she wasn't just a narcissistic spoiled brat. She was a woman on a very deep and powerful journey and had no help and no support for that. And that was something that I understood earlier in my career. It wasn't until I met Herb that I really had the kind of support that I needed to guide me to a different kind of life and a different kind of career. But I understood that in her and her her being pregnant and her not wanting to have something that she felt she could nurture and give life to was something that I understood. And having had, you know, a lot of the therapy that I had, I had lived a lot and I, I felt that I understood her in, in very different ways than other people have portrayed her. I just, I just didn't, I didn't think she was just a spoiled brat. Well, and there's something very interesting as I was thinking about you in the role, which is that if Hedda is always in her late twenties, early thirties, mm-hmm. when you deal with someone who's older, especially in that society at that time, that's someone people wouldn't have even thought of marrying. So she'd put it off for a very long time and finally relented. Again, part of Hedda's challenges. It's about the expectations of society that she does not want to be restricted by. So she gave in, and it's not working. That's exa- after a long time. That's ex- that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And at the, at that particular period of time, there was no way out for women. Mm-hmm. And hers was, I think, in many ways, a great act of courage, as well as defiance and anger. I also want to ask you, uh, because he was just a guest with us recently, about doing Sorrows and Rejoicings, right. both written and directed by Othel Fugard. Right. Again, it was one of those things that I, I was really kind of astonished to get the part. I didn't audition for it. I met Athel for a meal, and we talked. And it was out of that that he came to give me the part. Hmm. We were talking about life and art and people and psychology and 
how we both viewed life and how we felt about life and about the kinds of things that were not even even close to what was in the play. But it was about how we each chose to live and what our goals were and how we saw things. And we talked about Teresa of Avila and we talked about politics and we talked about apartheid and we talked about all those kinds of things. And it was out of that that he came to give me the part. Hmm. So that was a very unusual circumstance. And and then, of course, we did it um, in New York at Second Stage uh, for my friend Carol Rothman. And then I had scheduled in between time serendipitously or divine choreography, whichever you want to say, a trip to South Africa before I'd even gotten the part where I was doing an AIDS trek to raise money for on-the-ground care in South Africa and research here in the United States. So in between going to doing it in New York and then coming to Los Angeles to do it at the taper, I had a trip to South Africa. So I talked to Athol about that too. So it was and and when I came back from South Africa, I felt that that informed the performance in a in a much deeper way than I had ever thought um, that I that I that I carried with me when I was in New York. Hmm. And you did a production of Company for Reprise, which is the West Coast version of Encores. Of all that we've talked about, uh, I don't think we've used the word musical yet. Is <laughs> no. is is there a musical comedy uh, performer or? Or musical drama performer uh, in Judith Light waiting to, to make it to the stage? I, I think so. I think so. It was really interesting because that was a whole other story about auditioning for that. But I hadn't really done much of anything since I'd done Adelaide and Guys and Dolls for the USO tour. And uh, I'd done a couple of things. I actually did a Cole Porter musical in Seattle um, in which I was dreadful. Um, and, I re- and I realized that I, I really needed to, to go back and, and really study and work on my voice. And, and I didn't I – w- I was terrified to audition and, and this friend of mine said, you know what? You really need to do this. And Herb again said, you know, just go and audition. You don't have to get the part. Just work through the fear because the, f- the fear has been something that has, you know, as you can tell through the theme of all of this, something that I've always had to kind of come up and face and get beyond. And um, I, I went in and I, I – did the audition and um, it was so – I mean just getting up there and singing for them and doing you know, an iconic part. You know, it's Elaine Stritch. I mean you know, everybody says, oh, it's the Elaine Stritch part. And it's yes and it, and, and it was Joanne and I, I left there and I just walked out of the room and I just burst into tears just out of the sheer relief of having been mm. able to get up and do it and then – they gave it to me and that was a tremendous gift and every one of those people in that show was so kind to me. Oh my God. They were so good. I said, look, you guys, I am – this is not my metier but you know, if you'll help me and support me and they did and um, I got through it and it was a great point of my career in my life. Well, even with a 22-year hiatus from the stage – we haven't been able to touch on everything you've done in this interview, but I have to draw it to a close and just say thank you for fighting through the fear and thanks for coming back to the theater and thanks for being here today. Judith Light. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be back. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. 
Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and also be sure to check our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.